Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Revenue Builders podcast. I'm John Kaplan here with my great friend, five-time CRO and best-selling author of the book, The Qualified Sales Leader, John McMahon. Johnny, how are you? Doing great, Cap. Thanks. And uh, really excited to with our guest today. Super excited. Yeah, me too. I, I got your text last night at two o'clock in the morning from Amsterdam, and yes. you were quoting uh, chapter eight of uh, Brent's book. I'll get in the introduction in just a second, but yes. uh, our, Johnny and I are experienced a little bit of trouble down in Southwest Florida with Hurricane uh, Ian yesterday, and the topic of embracing the suck uh, was was well received. So let's get into the introduction here really quick. I'm, I'm really excited to have Brent with us today. Uh, Brent Gleason is a Navy SEAL combat veteran, award-winning entrepreneur, best-selling author, and acclaimed speaker on topics ranging from leadership building high-performance teams to culture, uh, resilience, and organizational transformation. Upon leaving SEAL Team 5, Brent turned his discipline and battlefield lessons to the world of business and has become an accomplished entrepreneur, author, and acclaimed speaker. Brent is the founder and CEO of Taking Point Leadership, a progressive leadership and management consulting firm with a focus on business transformation and building high-performance cultures. He's been named one of the top 10 CEOs in Entrepreneur Magazine, Entrepreneur Magazine for his exemplary approach to building high-performance teams. He's also built and successfully exited two other companies. Um, he's the best-selling author of Taking Point, a Navy SEAL's 10 fail-safe principles for leading through change and Embrace the Suck, um, where the foreword is written by one of my personal favorites, David Goggins. Uh, <laughs> both of these books are fantastic, and they both are, killed it on Amazon. So we, we're going to talk about those books today, but we highly, highly recommend them. Brent is on the executive board of the SEAL Family Foundation, and his family is an ambassador family for March of Dimes. He's married with three wonderful children. Brent, thanks for being with us today. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. It's four children now. <laughs> we'll get to that later. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Congratulations, brother. COVID, COVID struck again. <laughs> well done. Well done. Hey, brother. So we are, um, we are ecstatic to, to have you. Um, you've, you've made a incredible impression uh, on others by applying, you know, Navy SEAL skills, uh, you know, to help corporate leaders and revenue builders. And so we're, we're really, really excited to have you here today. And, um, you know, if we just dig in really quick, 
um, after, I'm sorry, I'm looking at Johnny here, and I didn't give Johnny a chance to say hello. Sorry about that. Johnny, say hello really hey, quick Johnny. before I go into my hey, first Brent, question. how are you? Good. How I you heard doing, John Kaplan right there. So yeah. you know, we're, I'm really excited for the audience to hear what you have to say. I read your book and loved it, and this Thank a lot you. of good information in there. So happy to have you. Yeah, thanks. It's an honor sorry to be here, guys. That. Sorry about that, guys. I'm still struggling to embrace my own sock of of, of uh, Southwest Florida yesterday. But um, so so, Brent, uh, taking on the endeavor. First of all, just let's start with just becoming a Navy SEAL. I think your story is fascinating because the you know you're sitting in you're you're sitting just a year out of SMU with a finance uh, and economics degree uh, <laughs> and you're working in corporate America. Could you just kind of walk us through how that all kind of developed for you? How'd you become yeah, a SEAL? It was a very natural progression. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I grew up in Dallas and did my undergrad at SMU. Um, and when I graduated, I took a job as a financial analyst. And at that time, I had a very close friend of mine, one of my actual fraternity brothers at SMU who was a year behind me in school. And so he was a senior. I was working um, in, in the financial sector, but he was one of these young men who had a more or less lifelong dream and passion to uh, test the waters in the Naval Special Warfare community, um, keeping in mind that this is right before 9-11. So a different mindset. Uh, so for, for many, uh, myself included, it was more of a personal challenge at that time because we were not at war yet. Um, and so he and I started training together, uh, when I was a senior, he was a junior. And then when I had graduated and started working and he was a senior, uh, for me, there was no intent on actually leaving my newfound career to join the military. Uh, it was just a way to, you know, stay fit, have an accountability partner, and then simultaneously help a friend prepare for the arduous journey ahead. But by nature of the fact uh, of our uh, workout regimen, we spent a lot of time together. So every single night after work, uh, Saturdays and Sundays on the weekends, calisthenics, distance running, training and doing marathons, uh, you know, long swims. Obviously, we were having a lot of conversation and dialogue about the implications of the challenge he was uh, embarking upon. So it piqued my interest and I started doing some research and reading books about the history of the Naval Special Warfare community all the way back from our forefathers from the underwater demolition teams in World War II through Korea to Vietnam, where we essentially became the organization that we are today, at least in its infancy. And I became fascinated with the culture of the organization and the structure and how we, uh, you know, all the way from talent acquisition to onboarding to training and development, how we design uh, an organizational environment that creates the most high performing individuals in the world, at least, you know, within the warfare sector. And so that growing fascination coupled with the uh, extremely boring nature of my entry level financial analyst position, working 80 <laughs> hours a week, chest deep and pivot tables and financial reports. I was like, you know what? <laughs> this sucks. So I don't want to embrace this. Let's go embrace some different sucks. So I actually wrote my parents a handwritten letter. <laughs> Clearly, I'm just aged myself. This is a long time ago. Wrote them a handwritten letter and told them I was leaving my, my job to uh, join my buddy Matt on his uh, journey of nautical nonsense. And, uh, and that's where we began. So we actually left Dallas and moved up to Crested Butte, Colorado. Uh, we trained there at high altitude for about six months, 10 to 12 hours a day, seven days a week. 
uh, preparing ourselves physically and mentally. And then uh, early 2000 joined the Navy and that's where it began. Wow. It's amazing. How did parents received that when you said I've made a lot of bad decisions in my life and that was the first one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How'd your parents take that when you sent them that handwritten note? Uh, I think they went through the stages of grief, you know, shock initially, anger, confusion. Now, I, once they realized that I was very serious and passionate about this course uh, that I was uh, embarking upon, uh, they were, I would say, cautiously optimistic uh, because of, you know, they didn't know much about the, uh, the SEAL training pipeline, but they did know that we have an extremely high attrition rate. So there's a high level of risk, obviously. Um, not to mention they were just glad I had a job in general. So now making such a radical shift, uh, you know, and transition in my life, uh, obviously anybody would be, um, I'd be remiss to say that anybody wasn't, you know, a little bit, uh, skeptical yeah. <laughs> of the outcome. So I did have a large contingent of highly skeptical friends, family, and colleagues, uh, that were trying to push me, uh, in a different direction. But I think if I reflect back on that, it, it uh, just put more fuel on the fire. Now you are, you are, so you go into the Navy SEAL program <clears throat> and you are surrounded by some of the most elite performers on the planet. Um, and I want to talk to you about kind of two different scenarios. The first scenario is you're looking around and you're seeing just some of this some of these characteristics of being elite, and I'd like you to describe those for us. So, um, talk about what you noticed about individuals and some of the common characteristics of why you guys were why you were there and 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 sure. what you were learning about yourself. But then also, let's follow up with, you know, there are also elite performers that went i mean you're not going to that if you're not elite in the first place but there's also people that rang the bell and I'd, I'd like for you to maybe share with us where there's some common characteristics not judgmental of anybody that rings the bell but where there's just some common characteristics of people that didn't make it so would you talk yeah. about what you noticed about the ones who excelled and what you noticed about the ones who didn't make it yeah, SEAL training is a fascinating social experiment. Uh, one of the interesting things uh, when you reflect back on it, and, and any any team guy would say the same thing, when you, when you first get to BUDS, which is the first six months of our long training pipeline, which stands for Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL, uh, typically that's what you're going to see on TV or in the movies depicted yeah. um, or Discovery Channel documentaries. Um, when you first get there, you, you know, let's say for easy math, you, you start with around 200 students in, in each class. We run six classes a year. So every two months, a new class uh, begins and cycles through. But obviously, from the onset, it's very much an individual exercise. Each individual has worked very hard to get just into the program. And so you're sizing each other up. And the, the interesting thing is, of the people you initially think, well, that guy, you know, he looks like he was going to make it. He's going to make it. Not that guy, not that guy. You would be wrong every single time. The people you're yeah. standing with at graduation are not the people that you probably initially thought uh, just by, again, judging a book by its cover uh, would be the ones who would make it. Uh, you've got, you know, it doesn't matter about your background culturally, physically, education wise. 
Uh, people might not think that the NSW community has a lot of diversity, but it's we have a, a large amount of diversity, uh, diversity of thought, experience, education, uh, people from all walks of life coming into this community, which obviously is to our benefit. And that's what we're looking for. Um, but yeah, th there were definitely a few individuals, David Goggins being one of them. I was like, OK, <laughs> I don't think I've seen this guy smile once since we got here. Uh, and then we tell me, say, dude, is he is he <laughs> as much of a nutter as he appears as he appears to be in his writings? Oh, way more. Holy way more. smokes. <laughs> now, he's he and, and, and as many of the, you know, the listeners and viewers know uh, from reading his book, phenomenal. It's crushed. It can't hurt me. Great story. Yes. And, and that's that's a lot of it, it fueled a lot of my research on resilience too, not to get off on too much of a tangent, but it's fascinating because it does apply to our conversation around you know the SEAL training pipeline. Resilience doesn't necessarily come from people having uh, you know an arduous childhood or coming from a lot of um, adversity necessarily. Sometimes it's chosen. Sometimes it's, it's uh, intentional in the fact that people who choose to push the boundaries of their comfort zone and everything they choose to commit to um, that builds resilience as well. So, you know, I, I was in boat crew two. David talks a lot about boat crew two. We were, we were in the same boat crew together. We went to seal team five together. So he was maybe just one of like two or three individuals I can think of that I was saying, yeah, those guys are going to make it, but otherwise you'd be, you'd be wrong about that. But what you see very quickly, uh, in the training process is those who are truly committed uh, and, and we'll talk a bit, I'm, I'm assuming in this conversation about some of those attributes and the mindset, uh, not the physicality so much, but the mindset of individuals and students who are successful in our program and those who are not. Uh, there's, there's some very interesting, um, you know, behavioral, uh, physical and emotional, uh, you know, cognitively uh, elements that, that play a big role in, in success there. So, yeah. Hey, Brent. So you know, humans naturally, you know, seek pleasure and avoid pain. And in your book, you talk about channeling the pain pathways in order to be able to survive something like Bud. So can you talk a little bit about channeling the pain pathway? Is that the way in which you can survive a Bud's? It, it, it very much is about a certain level of healthy compartmentalization. Um, and there's, there's one, and we've done a lot of research, obviously, as you can imagine, a two decades of war trying to identify the mental, emotional, cognitive, and physical attributes of students that are more likely to successfully navigate our training pipeline. Because with such a high attrition rate, uh, we have what you might consider talent acquisition challenges. <laughs> so we're trying to grow the ranks of the Naval Special Warfare community, yet we're still graduating 10 to 15% per class. Obviously, we've delved into a lot of research trying to identify how do we acquire better talent and put better talent in the top of that funnel, if you will. And uh, of all the data we've collected, it, it really comes down to a few things. One is a, a deep emotional connection to the mission and purpose of the organization. Um, obviously, what you get now, you know, have, you know, being at the tip of the spear of, of these conflicts we've been involved in over the past, you know, two decades, um, and, and I do informally mentor students through the program now, so I get to kind of uh, stay connected in that regard to see what is the mindset of these students now, what are they looking for, what are they trying to get out of this, what do they want to contribute to our community and to the cause, but it comes down to that emotional connection. But at the same time, and Rich Devaney, a longtime SEAL officer who wrote a phenomenal book called um, Attributes, 
and he was a, a an officer at our tier one special operations uh, unit in, in SW. And it's not just about that emotional connectivity to the cause. It's about in the moment, literally embracing uh, the pain and the adversity that you're in right there, because it's part of that journey and, and understanding that that's critical for your uh, mental, emotional, and physical development. So not just pushing it aside and saying, no, I'm doing this for the cause saying, no, no, this is part of the cause. I'm doing this right now. I'm feeling this pain, but so is he, so is he, we're feeling it together. And uh, embracing the moments that you're in is really, really important for that, uh, for that transformation. Yeah. In the book, you talk about, you know, the first time embracing the suck came into your mind. You talked about don't fight it, embrace the pain, beg for more. <laughs> and then <laughs> the most important thing to me, change the narrative in your mind. If you yep. can't do that, you're really in trouble. Right. Yeah. And it, it, for, for on the topic of, of, of training, really looking at it, it as a blessing and, and the opportunity you have just to be there. Uh, that's something I think that also drives students successfully through the program is looking at it as like, I'm, I'm blessed just to have this opportunity, <clears throat> whether I make it or not, it, it, I'm blessed to be here in the first place and, and to be yeah. able to have the opportunity to serve in that capacity. And I think a commander told you early on to write down these three words, persistence, purpose, and passion. And did those, those three words really stick with you? What did they mean to you? Uh, obviously <clears throat> persistence was one thing I learned just in the, the process of starting to train for this, understanding the risk that I was undertaking, uh, by leaving that job and, and joining the military, uh, and, and really knowing that, uh, there was going to be many, many seen and unforeseen obstacles uh, ahead. Um, passion goes back to what I was talking about before, a, a passion for the cause. If you think about any lofty goal we've ever pursued in life, whether it's sports or work or charitable organizations or in relationships or as a parent, spouse, what have you, um, no lofty goal is ever achieved without some stress, some pain, some adversity. Otherwise, it's totally. probably not a lofty goal. And so it really comes back to that, that, that passion for what you're trying to accomplish. Um, and that passion gives you that sort of all in all the time mentality. Uh, and the energy to navigate those obstacles successfully and to move more quickly through um, the pain and suffering than others who don't maybe have that emotional connectivity to what they're trying to accomplish. So we're all human. So we obviously all go through those, uh, you know, emotional ups and downs. But what I've found and what I've seen in the research that I've done for Embrace the Suck too is, is that... Uh, resilient people obviously move more quickly out of that bunker of normal human emotion. Why me? Why now? Why this? You know, focusing on things that are wildly out of our control, as opposed to uh, resilient people uh, and thinkers who move more quickly towards action-oriented execution. Now, Brent, um, one of my favorite books on the planet is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah. And the, in that, my first experience with really kind of learning about, you know, resilience defined in that way of talk about embracing the suck of being a Holocaust uh, uh, prisoner and then, you know, being a survivor. What the data showed back then 
was that people that had the ability to stay focused on a future that was um, something different than that what they were experiencing now, where the eye on the prize is bigger than what you're experiencing. When I was reading your book, Embrace the Suck, I was really interested to understand like the differences. Like in your experience, you talk about controllables and uncontrollables. And and one of my favorite parts that's going to stick with me is staying in a three-foot world. And would you just kind of talk a little bit about that? And then also, there is there a combination of the two, like definitions of resilience of people that can they can see themselves in the future successfully, so therefore they can endure what they're enduring now. Your your premise is is similar to that, but it's also not missing the journey of the hard stuff that you're experiencing right now and and leaning into it. And I'm not asking yeah. you to compare like Holocaust to not, yeah, I'm not yeah. we're not going to go there, but could you talk about the differences in the, in the two mindsets and where maybe they come together? Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the three foot world uh, methodology, as you know, is uh, borrowed from one of my closest friends, Mark Owen, uh, who wrote No Easy Day, uh, the first book about the, the Bin Laden mission. Uh, longtime friend, we were uh, we were in the same platoon at SEAL Team 5 together before he went on to uh, a selection process for our, our tier one organization. And uh, in his book, and we've talked about this, obviously, casually in person, too. Uh, it's from a story. Uh, you know, his troop was doing some uh, lead climber uh, uh rock climbing training uh, outside of Las Vegas. And lead climber is where uh, obviously you're doing a multi-pitch climb with multiple climbers. And the lead climber obviously is the, the, the one at the top who is uh, setting the course, setting the protection in the rock. And so if think about it, you're climbing, let's say 20 feet above your last piece of protection. If you fall, you're going to fall 40 feet before the rope you know, snaps you in half <laughs> and bounces you back mm-hmm. up. So and surprisingly, not all seals love heights. So <laughs> some of them uh, are terrified of heights, but still love jumping out of airplanes and uh, rock climbing. So he was high up on, uh, on, the, on this pitch and got to a position where, you know, he wasn't trusting his foothold, didn't have a, couldn't see the next move on the route he had, he had coursed out. And so he was kind of frozen <laughs> like a cat. And the instructor noticed, and obviously his, his teammates started kind of making fun of him. Of course, that's what we do. And so the instructor uh, scales up, up the, you know, free climbs up this pitch <laughs> mm. to, to, to where to, to Mark's position and was like, what's up? What's the problem? And he starts looking around. He starts looking down at the guys. He's like, don't look down there. They can't help you. He starts looking out to the horizon, to the Las Vegas skyline. He's like, what are you looking over there for? Las Vegas can't help you. His point was stay in your three foot world right here. Focus on what is in your span of control mm. and only focus on that alone. And, and it, it really kind of goes into uh, some of those core elements of resilience where people who are more resi- resilient spend less time, emotion, and energy on things they can't impact or things that are totally out, out of their control or things they know they can't even influence. And so that's really the philosophy around that three-foot world uh, mindset is spending most of your time. And again, it's not Oftentimes people say, well, focus on what's in your control and ignore the rest. Do not ignore the rest because you have to maintain situational awareness on other elements that might come into play that you can impact, 
but spend all your time and energy on things that are in your control. We, we've seen this so much, for example, not to go down the COVID road, but when we have these completely unforeseen, like no organization or person had global pandemic on their list of contingencies in their strategic plan for 2020. Right. But when it did strike personally, professionally for everybody and every organization we've worked with, including our own, we spent a lot of time focusing on things we couldn't control and a lot of energy uh, and a lot of emotion on it. But what we've seen too is, that especially in organizations my company works with, the one, many of our clients thrived through COVID because they very, very rapidly adapted to the situation uh, through digital transformation, adoption of new technology, adjusting their revenue models, uh, becoming more lean, more efficient. They came out more profitable <laughs> and yeah. bigger than they were before. We'll talk about that later, but it's, it kind of goes into what we're talking about around the three-foot world is they adapted quickly to focus on things they could control uh, and put everything else over to the side. Yeah, and you also talk in your book about people having a personal exit strategy, meaning that they, they're living with the end in mind, and that allows them to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Right? So that, yeah. is that where those two worlds come together? Is that where kind of an exit strategy like the Viktor Frankl of seeing yeah, the end game yeah. but embracing the journey of where you're in? Is that where those two worlds come together? A absolutely. And, and that's kind of goes back to what we we're talking about, about students who are successful in SEAL training. They do both things very well simultaneously. Yeah. yeah. They keep their mind on the end game and the, you know, the, the rosy outcome of what they're trying to accomplish, becoming a SEAL or becoming a CEO or growing a great business or having a great marriage and a great family. What is that end game in mind? So I've always, you know, believed in the philosophy of, let's say, from an entrepreneurship standpoint, building an organization as if you're going to exit it, obviously. Um, and so it forces you, whether you have no plans of selling the business or not in the, in the near term, it forces you to build a great foundation, a great structure, a great process, make things teachable, repeatable, and scalable. And so the same thing applies to our personal lives. If you think about it, we, we, Oftentimes leaders and organizations, we, we, and I do this too, I'm guilty of all these things <laughs> where we say, you got to have a great strategy. You got to have a great culture, follow your values. And then we don't do these things for ourselves. Mm. You know, we don't have a set of family core values. We don't talk about our strategic priorities in our personal life or our family life or in our marriage. We don't prioritize those things. Uh, but, but why, you know, why, why don't we? And I actually, when I started, you know, doing a lot of research for the book, Embrace the Suck, you know, I started, you know, reflecting on these things, uh, you know, personally as well and saying, wow, we, we, we need to have family core values. <laughs> One, I have to practice what I preach if I'm going to write about it in the book, but it really pushed, you know, my wife and I, for example, to really reflect on what matters, what doesn't, how we make decisions, what we invest in financially, you know, how we parent uh, you know, how we communicate with one another. So all these things are obviously intimately tied together, but it, uh, those are where those two worlds converge is Love keeping that. a focus on the long-term vision. And then of course, embracing the journey along the way, for sure. Uh, the, the good, bad, and ugly, of course. One of the things that I loved in your book was this concept. I think embracing the suck for me was this principle of moving beyond comfort zones. And I had an experience recently where I was in a gym and 
somebody asked me, okay, what, what are you planning to do here? And I kind of told them what I was planning to do from a workout perspective. And they're like, well, you know, how much weight are you going to put on it? Well, you know, last week I did this and, and I had the same weight on there. And, you know, the, the mentality that was introduced to me is, well, you're, you're, you're wasting your time. If you're going to use the same (laughs) weight that you use, this is, this is amazing. Like I consider myself very forward thinking on these, (laughs) on these topics. And the person was like, you're wasting your time. You're not going to grow. You're there's, there's, you're not going to get any growth from you did that last week. So talk a little bit about moving this beyond your comfort zone. And it's not just once. It's like a yeah. mindset of continuously expanding your comfort zone. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I think it, it's intentional. It's being intentional and proactive in pushing the boundaries of your comfort zone. We have multiple opportunities every minute of every day to make better choices. Um, j- just like, you know, you know I'm going I'm to do this great workout. I'm going to feel great afterwards. But then we find ourselves in the same rut and we, yeah. all of us, myself included, we realize that, oh shit, you know, I'm, I'm in my comfort zone. This is not yeah. where I belong. This is not where I should be. I'm not pushing those boundaries intentionally. I'm not finding new ways to um, make myself a little bit uncomfortable, whether it's decision-making, making tough decisions as a leader, doing a little bit harder workout than you initially, initially planned on. I did this the other day where uh, I took my uh, six-year-old to, uh, to soccer practice and I was like, well, I've got, you know, I don't have time to drive all the way home. It's gonna be about an hour and a half. So I was like, well, maybe I'll go to this hotel down the road and, you know, check some emails or, you know, do some reading or whatever. I was like, no, 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 <laughs> you're going for an hour and a half run. And I did that instead. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't want to do it. Like none of me at that time of the day wanted to do it. And mm-hmm but I did it anyways. And, and I felt great afterwards. And I was glad that I had chosen that over the easier thing. And so we have those opportunities, whether it's in work or a personal life or from a wellness and fitness perspective to make better choices all the time. We don't always do it. All of us. Cause no. we, the hardest we part do naturally seek. Getting... Yeah. We seek comfort and pleasure naturally, yeah. as opposed to seeking pain. But when we can kind of retrain our brains and, and John, like you said earlier, uh, kind of change the narrative uh, in your mind, you naturally become more inclined to choose the harder stuff. And that's what I tell like some of the, the young folks that I mentor is do hard shit, like on purpose all the time, every single day, find one thing. And I wrote about in the book, like, like David says, you know, do something that sucks every single day, one thing, whether it's that tough decision, you know, that difficult conversation you don't want to have with a colleague or a client or your spouse or your child, just do it front loaded in the first part of your day and get it out of the way. And once you do things like that, and I'm, I'm guilty of this lifelong, uh, typically, especially as a leader, that's something I've always gotten feedback is, is I'm a bit of a conflict avoider, actually mm. you know, on the literal battlefield, I'll run to the sound of gunfire every single time. But I've typically trended towards not wanting to have that conversation. I know I'm going into a a board meeting where I'm going to get yelled at or this person I have to fire or somebody needs to fire them. And I'm just like, oh, let's let's push that to tomorrow's to-do list or that could really wait till next week. And if when we do that, what happens? Well, the problem just gets worse or it becomes more cancerous, more toxic. and, And then you're like, why? And then you finally do it and you're like, 
why the hell didn't I do that three months ago? Right. And you realize it wasn't that big of a deal in the first place. (laughs) For me, for things like that, what I've always found is just taking that first step is the hardest part, right? So if I need to go on a run or get in my, go on a, you know, ride bikes, I'll put my cycling gear on and go downstairs. Yeah. And then my kids are going, oh, you're going on a ride? And I go, like, maybe I guess I am, right? (laughs) You're committed now. now? I'll go back upstairs and take my cycling gear on. I like that. I can. Or if I take, put my running gear on and, and the hardest part is putting the running gear on and closing the door behind you. My wife does it all the time. The door behind me, I'll have her workout inside. Have her workout yeah. clothes on. I'm like, you going I'm to work done. Out? She's like, I don't know. <laughs> like, you know, guys. All joking aside, I remember 30 years ago when I used to do what was in back in the day called co-calling. Um, and <laughs> my, that? yeah, my uh, my office was probably 45 minutes away from where I from where I live, I would wake up in the morning. I'm just, I'm thinking about this right now. And I would knew that I was going to be in my house all day and I'm going to be on the phone. There's no zoom. There's none of that. And I would get up and I would put my suit on. (laughs) This is a true story. And you guys are totally getting me motivated right now. And I would, (laughs) and my wife would come to me and say, she did one time. And then she just realized I was a nutter anyways, but she'd say, what are you doing? I said, she said, I thought you, I thought you were going to work from home today. And I'm like, I am. I am. And she's like, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm getting ready to go to work. And she goes, yeah, but you're wearing your suit. And I said, yeah. And I remember saying to her, I said, I got to get my mind right. Mm -hmm. I got to get my mind right. And that like what you're saying, what both of you are saying is it's, it's intentional. It is very, very intentional. And just by putting on that suit, was like, John, what am I going to do? I'm going to put on a suit and then I'm going to goof around all day. No, I'm going to put on that suit and, and remind myself of why, why I'm here and what I'm doing. So I love the topic that you guys are discussing, excuse me, discussing is that, you know, you're not born with this stuff. This is, these are choices that, that we all have the ability to make. And Brent, what you're encouraging us to do in the book, again, we're talking about, uh, the book, uh, uh, embrace the suck um which could be found on easily on amazon it's a great read but really what you're talking about brent is um you know you have elite performance and navy seals and all this great stuff you're doing but you're you're giving us ideas that begin with choices yeah these these great outcomes that begin with choices so uh it's it's funny i i walked into my 16 year old's room uh yesterday and he's you know, he's laying in bed under the covers on his iPad doing homework or studying. Mm-hmm. I was like, what are you doing? And I learned this from my parents. So I was like, get your ass out of bed, go sit at your desk, <laughs> yeah. you know, put a clean shirt on. Again, it's, it's about yeah. being intentional, yeah. creating an environment where you're going to perform better. I checked in on, on an hour later, still sitting at his desk. He's like, yeah, this is actually way better. <laughs> I'm more focused, more energized because I'm putting myself in an environment of better performance, laying down under your comforter, uh, trying to study or do homework or retain information probably is not the best environment as opposed to, like you said, putting that suit on and getting your mind right that I'm going to go out and execute today, whether I'm at home in my office or in the living room or, you know, at my office downtown. Now, how do you bring in this concept of with everything we're talking about, you talk a lot about 
having a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And I think that this will really resonate with our audience. Could you talk to us about what you mean by that? Sure. Uh, and initially in my research, I came across uh, Carol Dweck um, and she's a, a known uh, you know, subject matter expert in this space and uh, Stanford professor and all these great things and a psychologist. And so in its simplest form, you know, she breaks it down into five categories of skills, uh, challenges, effort, feedback, and setbacks. And so we look at a fixed mindset, which is pretty self-explanatory of individuals. And these things, what, what's interesting is these things are situational. You know, we, we teach a lot about leadership resilience in our programs at Taking Point Leadership. And we work with you know, leaders from large organizations all over the world. And we all have similar challenges, regardless of industry, size of organization, um, where that organization is in their life cycle, because we're all human. So there's that human condition that always plays a role in our ability to perform, our ability to engage others, lead others, uh, accept and receive feedback, things like that. But your fixed mindset is traditionally more uh, you know, within those five categories of my skills are my skills. There is no point in working towards developing any new skills because I am who I am. You know, that kind of mentality. Yeah. Uh, challenges, you know, they're going to come. I'm going to take a beating, uh, but I will definitely not seek them out. You know, when it comes to effort, no point in putting effort in towards uh, anything that pushes beyond the boundary of my comfort zone because it will not result in any type of return on investment, if you will, uh, for the time, energy, and emotion that I'm going to put into that. So I'm not going to do it. I'm going to avoid that. I'm going to stay right here in my cozy little comfort zone. Uh, feedback. People with a fixed mindset uh, get pretty uncomfortable when they get uh, collect constructive criticism from others. Whereas, again, moving more towards the growth mindset, high performers, and I have the, the blessing and opportunity to work with a lot of high performers in, in our organization, uh, other you know, SEAL team members that you know, did far more than I did. We just brought on one of my longtime friends and colleagues who literally uh, is about to retire 30 years out of the SEAL teams. Wow, 30. Uh, Matthew 30. Yeah. Three zero, uh, who literally put my class through advanced training, otherwise known as seal qualification training, uh, before you graduate and go onto your team and is just now, uh, transitioning out. Uh, he's taking over as our VP of programs and, uh, just a phenomenal leader, um, and a really, uh, great person. We're blessed to have him. But my point is, you know, we have top gun fighter pilots on our team. We have behavioral psychologists, all people, who've at some point in their career or still at the peak of their game. And so we get to have all these great conversations internally. And also when we interact with our client partners about what was that mindset that they have, you know, when we talk about resilience, I like the question when you're reflecting on when I, when I've been most resilient in my life, what was true about me in those moments, mm. emotionally or physically, uh, cognitively, why was I so resilient in that moment? And conversely, when I've been uh, the least resilient in my life, what was true about me then? So again, these things are, they're, they're cyclical, they're situational. So we don't always have a fixed mindset. We don't always have a growth mindset. When we're put into positions uh, that push us beyond the boundaries of our comfort zone, sometimes initially, we go back to that fixed mindset. <laughs> like this is, I am not seeking this out. I did not foresee this life or work ambush. I don't feel like I want to go down this path. Um, and so, but what's interesting about people who, or, or teams that trend towards that growth mindset is they are intentional 
in developing their skills continually. You know, they believe in what the Japanese call Kaizen, continuous yep. improvement, and continually debriefing. What's working? What's not working? How do we apply these lessons learned to be in a continuous state of improvement? Challenges? Let's seek them out. Let's go find a new challenging opportunity uh, or a new way to innovate and be more creative uh, or adaptive with what we're trying to accomplish. Effort? It's always there. Regardless of what they're trying to accomplish, whether it's a small menial task or a large lofty goal, uh, resilient people and teams are always working beyond the boundaries of their comfort zone almost continually. It's, mm. it's really fascinating to, to research this, talk about it or experience it. And going back to feedback, and I've seen this and I, you know, again, someone who's more of a conflict avoider, this is something I'm always working on. Sometimes I don't want constructive criticism. My wife gives me plenty of constructive criticism every day. <laughs> and sometimes I, I don't want to accept it. <laughs> and sometimes I get a little, a little, uh, you know, touchy about it. She's like, you're not practicing what you preach. And then I get more annoyed when she says that. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say this if she was sitting right here. But I remember one time after a, a, an initial uh, interaction with a new team member, former, you know, uh, Marine Lieutenant Colonel, Top Gun fighter pilot, Top Gun instructor. Uh, the joke was when, once this movie comes out, nobody's going to want to hear from Navy SEALs anymore. They're all, they're all going to want to hear from Top Gun fighter pilots, which seems to be true. And we sat down and he took his glasses off. He's like, all right, what do you got for me? I was like, I, think, I thought it was great. You know, and you know, you know, I was giving him all this positive. He's like, no, 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 we'll talk about that later. What do you got for me? And he meant like, what could I improve? And I don't mean just like kind of casually. He was very, very intent on collecting constructive criticism, like a deep desire to improve not just from our own self-reflection, but from the feedback and insight of others. And that is something that we see all the time in organizations where when leaders, for example, are ripe for development, they have that mindset where they are yeah. very accepting of not just their own personal perception of how they're doing as a leader, but they want to collect really, really good, constructive, anonymous or non-anonymous feedback from those that they lead. And that is one of the best ways to build trust and accountability in an organization is when we, when we lead with that mindset. You, you talk about in your book, you talk about one of the ethos, and I think it's not only a Navy SEAL ethos, but it's, it's your personal ethos as well as my training is never complete. And therefore that's how you hold yourself. You, you have this mindset of my training is never complete. So therefore I'm open for feedback and I'm constantly looking for continuous improvement. Um, hey, I want to talk to you about this one concept in the book just really blew me away because I, I think it is so well described. You talked about the instructors. So we'll talk about we're kind of switching gears a little bit here from a leader leading people. You talked about how the instructors would always be able to spot the gray man. <laughs> and I thought that that was such an unbelievable, uh, unbelievable characterization of exactly what we're talking about. Maybe somebody with a fixed mindset, which is I'm, you know, I'm doing what's required of me. I'm not comfortable being uncomfortable. Therefore, I don't want to make a mistake. So I don't want to stick out. And you talked about the instructors in the first day or a couple of days, they'd look and say, okay, where are the gray men? 
And, and could you talk a little bit about that? Cause yeah. and I want to talk about how to lead gray men and women like that and to help them get out of that, but talk a yeah. little bit more about what that means. Well, we all sometimes want to be the gray man or woman, yes. you know, if we don't want to stick out, we don't want to, we don't want to suck, but we don't necessarily want to be like pushing the boundaries where we're, we're getting noticed. And then obviously yeah. you're opening yourself up for criticism. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm guilty of that all day long, but uh, yeah. in, in go, going back to training, I actually want to equate this obviously to organizations as well, because yes. you have these three subsets of people in an organization as well. The biggest bulk is sort of that gray area of your sort of, relatively disengaged people who are, yeah, like you said, they're, you know, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, but I'm not going to go above and beyond. You know, I don't want to suck, but at the same time, I also just want to kind of punch in and punch out. And so there is a huge temptation, obviously in SEAL training, especially when your class is at the beginning of its journey and it's large, you know, a couple hundred people and you just kind of want to blend in. You don't want extra attention from the instructors. Nobody does. Uh, maybe some people. But <laughs> Goggins. I, did, I didn't. Yeah, maybe Goggins. But I did not want <laughs> extra attention from the instructors. But at the same yeah. time, I wanted to perform. I wanted to be the fastest runner. I wanted to be the fastest swimmer. I wanted to perform in the obstacle course. You, know, you want to do well. Um, and it, it kind of initially is for your own personal benefit in that journey. But you quickly realize and students quickly realize you'll go further faster as a team. So everything you do is in boat crews in those early days. So seven person yeah. teams, six enlisted students and one uh, uh, naval officer who is the, the coxswain of the boat crew leader. Um, but the instructors look for people who are trying to blend in. And so yeah. there is no, it doesn't work. So it's kind of, you learn quickly, don't even try. <laughs> Just do your best, support the person to your left, support the person to your right, have that team mentality and go all in every single day and worry about the evolution you're in right now. Worry about passing the run, getting your fastest time and making it to breakfast. Then worry about the pass fail evolution you have between breakfast and lunch. Focus on that yeah. then. then make it to lunch. So you have this really interesting uh, ability to compartmentalize or some students do uh, to focus on not what's happening tomorrow, obviously prepare for tomorrow when you have the time and energy to do so, whether it's from a, from an academic standpoint, from a test you have to pass, because there's this whole academic side of SEAL training as well. Uh, and you have to make the grade too. So that's one of the things, one of my biggest takeaways was learning. Don't, don't worry about tomorrow, tomorrow prepare, but don't stress about it. Cause it's not in your control right now. Worry about what you're doing in the moment and being excellent at what you're doing right now. But don't and you so, also have gray men and women who self-sabotage because of this oh, yeah. fixed mindset? <laughs> isn't that a dangerous, it's slippery slope, isn't it? Like, yeah. It's like, and then they self-sabotage and they say, well, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it for the, t you give an example in your book about, I'm, I'm not going to do well on the test anyways. Therefore I'm just, I'm not going to study. And so they, they yeah. don't even, they self-sabotage. Yep. And it happens in, it happens in work too. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm not going to get that deal right now, or I'm not going to be successful <laughs> this quarter. So I'm, I'm not going to prospect today because yeah. it's not going to do me any good anyways. How do you lead people out of that gray area? 
kind of goes back to what we were talking about before is, is really, you know, and this is one of the many burdens of command of leadership is really helping them emotionally connect to the goal that the team is trying to accomplish, that shared sense of purpose, uh, common values, common goals, strategic prioritization. Uh, you know, with the organizations we work with, it, these things always come up. It's the same thing, like, like accountability, trust, communication is lacking. And then once you peel the onion back and do a, a root cause analysis, if you will, you realize it comes down to structure, to process, to priorities, role clarity. And the same thing happens in SEAL training with boat crews, for example. So, and I wrote about this in the book and, and much of what you do in Hell Week, for example, which is typically the fourth or fifth week of training. Um, the interesting thing about Hell Week, just real quickly for, for the audience is uh, you'll, again, easy math, let's say you start with a couple hundred students, you'll lose half your class in those weeks leading up to Hell Week. And most of the time you'll enter Hell Week sick, injured, or both. So you're not really at the peak of your game when you're coming into Hell Week and you're already sleep deprived, you're already broken down and, and you'll lose obviously uh, a huge chunk of the class during Hell Week. And then after Hell Week, you'll, you know, some people will be dropped for performance and things like that. But a lot of what you do in Hell Week is in competition with the other boat crews. Uh, I think largely this is just for the entertainment value of the instructors, <laughs> but, 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 but there are key lessons to be learned. And some boat crews come together like extremely quickly under inspirational leadership, obviously a leader who knows how to set the tone and culture of the team, uh, continually reminding them of the vision and mission of what they're trying to accomplish, which in that sense is very simple, just make it through hell week. So keeping it very simple. Don't worry about what's happening over there. Don't worry about what's out of your control. Embrace the moment we're in right now, not as an individual, but as a team. And they learn quickly. They will go further faster as a team. And when students realize, and this goes into altruism and giving back and being charitable, mm. things like that. When we focus, and you see this with um, you know, veterans challenged with post-traumatic stress or traumatic brain injury, the ones who are most successful navigating those arduous journeys, they make it about someone else. Mm. They give back. They don't worry about their own post-traumatic stress. They're like, I'm going to go help that individual who has PTSD or TBI, or I'm going to start my own charitable cause, or I'm going to find ways to make it about others as opposed to myself. And the students in training who do that, they spend almost all of their time worrying about this person to their left, this person to their wow. right, and the mission of the team. Therefore, they don't have a lot of time to worry about how cold they are, how miserable they are, how chafed they are, the mm. fact that their shins are broken. <laughs> They're worrying about the team. And what else can I be doing to drive mission success for this team right now? And those were not break appointed leaders, right, Brent? Those were people that stepped up as a leader on the team, I'm assuming. Well, it's, a, it's a good question. They, they are appointed leaders. So they're, they, they are, are naval, naval officers and the rest of the class is enlisted. However, uh, it's a great segue. It's almost like we rehearsed this. Um, so <laughs> those boat crews that, that win these competitions over and over, you know, they, just like any organization that's high performing, they break down silos. There's overlapping webs of performance. They're connected to the mission. Uh, they're highly accountable. They accept and receive feedback. So there's this continuous feedback loop. So they're always learning. They're debriefing, applying those lessons learned. They don't spend time in what we call artificial harmony. They're, they're more in the radical candor sector of giving each other feedback. And that is not just the officer telling the enlisted students. It goes up and down the chain of command and horizontally across their organization, if you will, in these small boat crews. Now, to your point, the other crews, 
in fact, the vast majority of other crews, they fall apart. You know, there's no leadership at any level. Sometimes even the, the appointed leader is not creating that culture of high performance. They're still thinking about themselves and their ability to succeed in the moment. So they're not creating high performance. You know, even in a seven person team, you see them behaving in silos. Uh, so they are literally and figuratively all rowing in different directions. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and so they, as you can imagine, uh, are not successful in these competitions. Um, and oftentimes what you'll see to illustrate your point, John, they will, uh, they will take a boat crew leader from a crew that's consistently winning and swap them out with a boat crew leader of a crew that's consistently uh. losing and kind of see what happens and what is that dynamic amongst the team. And what happens is fascinating and consistent across all classes. The boat crew that was winning all the races uh, under, uh, you know, new seeming, let's say, poor leadership, just for lack of a better phrase, just to illustrate the point. Well, you know, we ask this oftentimes to our, you know, in, in our leadership programs, you know, what do you think happens to that crew? People say, well, you know, their performance dips or, you know, things like that. It's, no. Yeah. You're shaking your head. You know where I'm going with this, right? They continue to win all the races Yes, because they've already created such a cultural environment of high performance that the team brings that leader along the journey with them. And that yes. leader becomes better because of the environment that they're in. So right. they literally have to step up uh, and become a better steward and servant to the team by nature of the environment they're put in. Yeah. Now, and that's the same in, in business or sports, oh, yeah. right? Every great leader still needs a champion or leaders underneath them that can bring the team together when they're not right. around. Otherwise, yep. you know, it's, it's really tough being a yeah. leader. And if the team isn't, doesn't have a leader amongst them. To yeah. try if you to have a job. high performing team, John, you should be able to, without telling anybody, just not show up for a week yes. and nothing happens right. except great things <laughs> yeah. and that's, actually that's had how, a, you know as a leader we're like work we should work ourselves out of a job because I actually that's had you know a, that you have and not i'm not just talking about succession planning and things like that but the you know it's a well-oiled machine that you don't have to be running and that's how you know you've done your job is because you've created other leaders and that exactly. goes into the topic of having the ability to decentralize decision making uh and not uh have a command and control environment because as we all know, that doesn't work in today's environment. No, maybe, it actually, never, maybe it never did. The leaders <laughs> and they leave and they and the team falls apart and they say, see, they really needed me. And I think, well, that was because you're a terrible leader. If you did your real job and you left, the team should still be able to be successful. It, it's we, a great point. It, it, this came up with you know one of our one of our clients where the there was a senior person, he's like, he was kind of he was kind of going down that path of complaining about the team and this one project team. And I said, let me, with respect, let me stop you right there. What, whose fault is that? Yeah. And he was like, no, no, Roger that. I'm tracking. I was like, no, 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 let's, let's talk about this. Let's unpack this a little bit. Whose fault is that? You know, we're, you're complaining about the performance. You're complaining about the, the, you know, the, the project manager, what have you. But ultimately, if there's issues within the team, that's my fault as the leader. And it kind of goes into that philosophy of extreme ownership of, well, really, all those things roll up to the top or should. And I don't mean, you know, functionally all decisions need to be at the top. They should never be. But ultimately when things are falling apart or goals are being missed or there's issues within the organization, it's because the leaders aren't addressing them. They're allowing those things to persist. So 
I think that it's this is such a great topic. I've talked to leaders before, and because somebody asked me one time, what do you think would happen if you disappeared? And I was so emotionally connected to my adrenaline coming from me doing what I was doing for that team that my answer was, well, I think they'd have a really hard time. And I was first introduced to the concept of that's poor leadership. Yeah. And I, I, it's an interesting dynamic because I think people self-identify with, well, this team would suck without me, or this team would really struggle without me. And uh, we, we get emotionally connected to trying to be the best at everything of that the team needs. And you talk, it's not possible in the Navy SEALs. And I think you learned that. You said, you're, you're not going to be the best sniper. You're not going to be the best person on comms. You're not going to be the best person. Not, so therefore, you've got to have an ecosystem around you of talent. And then, so, so for our audience listening is sometimes some of the best thought process on leadership is realizing that you need to surround yourselves with others that can lift not only the team up, but can yeah. lift you up. And for, for the type of characteristics of the people that we're talking about, elite performers and that, that's not an easy contemplation. Talk about how you help coach people to do that and well, the understanding that they're not yeah. going to be the best at everything. <laughs> Well, and oftentimes, obviously, our strengths are our weaknesses as well. Yeah. Um, and when, but when you can create, uh, to your point, an ecosystem uh, of performance, you know, we should be able to, as leaders, obviously, build a culture that we can lead with that, that, that creates specific desired outcomes, uh, have the right people doing the right things, you know, the whole right people in the right seat on the bus, but also setting the strategic priorities. Uh, making sure everybody understands the vision very, very clearly um, and setting those lane markers. But within that framework, allowing the team to innovate and make their own decisions. That is, you know, the, the epitome of decentralized command, which obviously has to happen in the world of special operations on the battlefield. You can't be waiting for the people in the tactical operations center to tell you to go left, or to go right or to make this decision. Those decisions have to happen on the ground. And we make these mistakes all the time in organizations, myself included, where we have that mindset of, well, we should create more autonomy and uh, we should be better delegators and all these things that sound good. And then we do it and then, you know, things fall apart. We're like, wow, I, I thought I was doing the right thing. I'm delegating. I'm giving people autonomy. But what we forget is, whoa, I, I forgot to give them the resources. <laughs> I forgot to provide them with the strategic direction and where they're supposed to go. Very specific and clear goals, role clarity, all these things, all those frameworks that have to be in place. Then you can effectively decentralize decision making, give them the training, develop the talent, give them the resources, and then allow them to attack the battlefield. But oftentimes we don't give them any of the resources. We just say, hey, I'm giving you this project, run with it. You think, yes, I'm a great leader because I just delegated. Yeah. I'm giving them autonomy. And then we didn't give them any resources. We didn't get, give them clear direction and, they, and then they fail. Um, and then we're like, well, and then our, our first inclination is to take that autonomy away from them because they failed. I'm going to take that back, put that on my plate. Sorry about that. Never mind. And then you just destroyed trust. Uh, you, know, you destroyed any type of environment you were trying to build of autonomous decision-making and decentralized command uh, because you didn't do it right. And again, I've, I've done this before. I've made these mistakes. Uh, 
again, like most leaders, well-intentioned, but there's a process that has to be involved. You want to create a cultural environment of high performance and decentralized decision-making, better autonomy. We see this all the time when we do, you know, our team dynamic assessments and group 360 assessments and things like that. It's really, really fascinating across all different types of organizations, the areas of opportunity, we'll call it, uh, which is a collective assessment coming from the either 360s or these assessments that we do, delegation and autonomy almost always kind of fall in that, you know, sort of weaker area. So we call it mm. an area of opportunity, obviously, but, um, and it's not always bad, but it scores lower than other things. So it's, it's w- which shows the fact that we as leaders have to continually be thinking about how you can create a framework and an environment where you can actually provide autonomous decision-making and allow those things obviously for celebrate the wins, have the coaching moments, be able to adapt. But sometimes we just got to put those things in place and get the hell out of the way. Mm, Yeah. Many times I've seen those leaders leave out the education on the why. Yes. (laughs) They just leave that out. So the person's trying to achieve this objective, but they don't understand the why. Right. You know, why it's so important for the team mission. So. It's, it's, it's actually a great point. We were just um, showing some research. This is from a, a combined Harvard and MIT uh, research that was done across, I think it was like 25 countries, 26,000 participants across all different types of organizations. And, and I, it was interesting because I studied and wrote a lot about uh, change leadership in my first book, Taking Point, which is all about leading organizational transformation. And obviously change is hard, change puts a lot of stress on the team. But what this research showed was that it's not necessarily about the number of continual changes or competing priorities that the team is going through. To a certain degree, there's a bell curve, but to a certain degree, more change builds resilience amongst teams, Mm. especially obviously your your higher Mm. performers and your more engaged folks. It's not about the number of changes necessarily. It's about explaining the why. To your point, exactly. People who understand, all right, there's a lot of change, a lot of different dynamics. I might have to adapt again tomorrow, but I know very clearly why we're doing this and why this is the new priority. But when we dump all these different competing priorities on our team members and we don't explain the why, they're just going through the motions or they won't really participate fully (laughs) or they'll just just not do it um, because they don't know what the purpose is and what the desired outcome is supposed to be. This is really related to, and I've been dying to ask you this question since I've been, since I read the book, it's related to the gray man. It's related to, to the why I'm having a huge number of conversations with leaders that are, you know, saying to me, John, you know, what I'm really struggling with is I can't get people to care about stuff as much as I do. And they're talking about this new language that is, quiet quitting (laughs) um and you know the great resignation and at first you know kind of made me chuckle and i was just thinking about quiet quitting and that's kind of you know you know and then i read the gray about the gray man and i'm like but then i started to get a stomach ache and like there's something really uh interesting going on right now Uh, certainly there's different world events and there's different things that are happening from pandemics and that kind of stuff that are making people reevaluate priorities. No problem with that. I get all that, but, but I think there's some underlying things 
on a leader, if you would, if you wouldn't mind, I think we've done a good job speaking to the people. If you're, if you're being thinking about quiet quitting, or you're thinking about great resignation or only doing the minimal amount or not being a team player or whatever, the book is perfect for you. Embrace the suck. I think is perfect for you because it, it's not about any of that stuff. It's about you kind of continuously improving no matter what environment you're in. Sure. But the leaders that are trying to communicate, inspire, there's also a massive responsibility from a leadership perspective on if all that's going on today, what do I do about it? And if you have some advice, quiet quitting's going on, great resignation's going on, um, a lot more self-reflection on taking care of myself versus not being committed to a cause or what have you. How do you coach leaders today? What are some simple things that we could do just today if we're leading organizations and we have a stomach that I'm not, I'm losing them. I'm losing them. How do I get them back? Well, one of the, one of the biggest factors that comes into play is that as leaders, we don't spend enough time being coaches and mentors to our team members. We focus on growth, profitability, project execution, closing the deal, whatever, whatever the things you're measuring as an organization um, for what you're trying to accomplish. We focus most of our time, attention, energy on those things Uh, and making sure obviously people have their priorities and they're trying to execute on what they're trying to accomplish, uh, achieving their goals, et cetera. But we don't ask the right questions. We don't make the time to, uh, this kind of goes back to what I was saying before is one of the things that also falls into that lower category of uh, opportunity, if you will, in these group assessments is uh, one thing, for example, is identifying burnout because we're not paying attention. We're not, yeah. you know, we're, we're canceling our one-on-ones or we're rescheduling them or we don't come prepared. We don't ask real questions. Yeah. How are you yeah. tracking on these goals? Are you, are you good? All right, Roger that. Check the box. Did my one-on-one. But we're not actually getting to know the people. We're not making sure not, you know, again, there's obviously lines you don't want to cross when it comes to being overly personal with, with team members, but you know, as leaders, we have to know our people and we have to know what motivates them. We have to know a little bit about their uh, personal, you know, intrinsic and extrinsic motivators. Um, and that's how we obviously make decisions and, and understand when we can push the boundaries of their comfort zone, when we shouldn't, when we should ask the questions. Because obviously, I'm too, our high performers, we ignore them a lot of the time because they're high performers. Like, oh, Susan, she's a badass. And, but Susan's saying yes to everything too. And then next thing you know, she puts in her two-week notice because she's been so stressed out for three months and I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> I'm like, why are, you, why are you leaving? What are you talking about? And she's like, Brandon, you haven't talked to me in three months. <laughs> wow. yeah, that's just an example, but, but well, it's a very specific example because I've done that in the past by accident yeah. because we're always focusing on the squeaky wheel and the underperformers or the people we need to level up and the people at the top, we kind of don't pay attention to sometimes mm. because they're at the top. They're at the top of their game, but it's interesting because identifying burnout when we're not doing that, it shows that we're not paying attention to the people and the needs of the people. We're not investing time and energy in their development, their mental health, uh, their physical well-being, things that all obviously intimately come together when it comes to performance on the job. Uh, we're just focused on the tactical or uh, measurable goals that we have set but we're not really being a true mentor or coach. And that's something we focus a lot on is, 
teaching leaders to not just be, you know, a tactical manager to be a strategic leader, but also be a mentor to the team. And that obviously fuels engagement. It fuels retention. It fuels performance. This is kind of that service profit chain model. And ultimately it, it, it forms a better level of performance that will create a better customer or client experience. You retain those customers, all these things obviously play into financial performance, but um, that's one of the biggest things is we just don't make the time to pay attention and ask the right questions. You also, in your book, though, you talked about motivation just now. And in your book, you talk about, I can't remember the name of the professor that wrote the handbook of motivation and broke people down into four different categories. One was success oriented, mm-hmm. then the overstrivers, the failure avoiding, almost sounds like the gray man, <laughs> and, then, and the failure accepting people. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's also, some of this is also, understanding who you did recruit onto your team and understand <laughs> how they are motivated because yeah. of the way in which that they are motivated and the way in which they're oriented. Right. Friend. Yep. No, absolutely. And those, those sort of four buckets you're talking about, you know, half of that goes into the growth mindset. The other half goes kind of into that fixed yeah. mindset mentality. Yeah. Um, but it, uh, you know, it, it is fascinating when you're looking at that from a team dynamic standpoint, whether you're talking about, Naval special warfare, sports, or business, uh, you see these behavioral things uh, rise to the top. But obviously, again, going back to what I was saying before, we just don't pay enough attention to those dynamics and make it a strategic priority to work on them. So all these behavioral things that we have to focus on to make sure that we're achieving the measurable goals uh, as an organization, as a team, what have you. But all these things that are behavioral play a huge factor into the cultural environment. Uh, that we need to create to achieve specific outcomes. Which one were you? Were you the success oriented or the overstriver? I think I know the answer. (laughs) Depends on the moment. You're probably not the other two. I was the overstriver. You talked about fear of failure was, you know, exerting themselves beyond what was reasonably expected. And yeah, man, I found myself there many times. Well, absolutely. I mean, I kind of jokingly refer to it in the book. It's like nobody... Nobody likes to fail. Failing sucks, whether it's a big failure, a micro failure, what have you. But it's a different mindset of being able to push the boundaries. And, you know, this is borderline cliche at this point. Everybody knows that, you know, your more quote unquote successful people or teams uh, are accepting of failure. They learn from failure. They push the boundaries enough to where they are failing to a degree, you know, but then you look at the definition of failure. Failure is when you go to, you know, those last two buckets, like you said, where you're either not even pushing the boundary because you're so afraid of failing that you never do or strive for anything exceptional. Um, Or when Mm. you do hit that roadblock or fail, you just stop trying. You get down, you get beat down, you don't get back up. And just like in the, in the seal ethos, you know, one of the lines is like, if knocked down, I will get back up every time. You know, I'm never out of the fight. Uh, I believe in that so much. I have it tattooed on my arm in Latin, but that's a different story. (laughs) But when you look at the definition of failure, I call them like micro failures. You know, it's not really true failure if you fall short of meeting an objective. You learn from it, you debrief with your team or yourself, you apply the lessons learned, and you keep moving forward, whether it's along that same trajectory or realizing sometimes, sometimes we should quit. You know, not quitting in the fact of like, well, you give up, but reminding of sometimes there's things we need to start doing and sometimes things we need to stop doing. You know, so there's intentional quitting <laughs> that high performers engage in as well, but they realize that the stuff that 
you know, it's kind of like Marshall Goldsmith's philosophy. What got you here won't get you there. So, you know, systems, process, methodologies, people, behavior, mindset that get you to one level of success, whether that's in fitness or, or personal life or professional goals or sports or military, they're not going to be the same. That'll take you to that next level of growth, development and goal achievement. Right. Some of that self-control, which in your book, you also talked about a study that found the top two qualities that are consistent predictors of success was intelligence and self-control. And what you've just been talking about is a lot of that self-control, understanding like, sure. why am I doing what I'm doing? And is this going to help me or hurt me? Yeah. Well, yeah, you it, called it, Brent, you called it taming the tiger. Self-control was <laughs> like, right? Didn't you call it taming the tiger in the book? Yeah, that, that was one of my favorite chapters to write. It was a taming temptation tiger. And yeah. so I, I had fun with it, but it, uh, it, it really is about all those distractors and those things that aren't associated uh, with achieving the things we want to or need to, uh, to go down the path that we're trying to in our life or our work. Um, we, again, going back to things that are in our control, out of our control, we spend a lot of time on stuff that just doesn't matter. I think a lot of people, again, not to harp on, you know, COVID and the pandemic, but it did put people in any type of unforeseen life or work ambush is going to put you in that situation where you start reflecting and reassessing on what really matters, what you really care about, what your values are, uh, what types of decisions you make, uh, what you're wasting your time or your money on. Um, I think a lot of people, and you, you kind of saw a lot of people go through, you know, the past couple of years where they either came out of it stronger, wiser, more fit, more intelligent in a completely different career. They quit their job and started that business that they wanted to start. And they've been talking mm -hmm. about for 15 years, but were too afraid to do it. And then there's the other subset. And there's probably various subsets. There's another subset of people who were crushed by it and didn't know what to do and stayed for a long, long time. Again, going back to that bunker of normal human emotion of the why me, why now, why this, as opposed to other people who are like, dust off, get back up, go down the same path or do something completely different. Yeah. yeah. So Brent, we've, we've had an unbelievable conversation with you. I know people are listening and going, okay, so first of all, we talked about couple of things people can do immediately is go out and get the book uh taking point leadership uh which is which you described as more about you know running organizations learning about how to instill those principles of success in organizations and then embrace the suck which is kind of more about you know moving past difficult situations and learning from difficult situations to make you more resilient. So the first thing people can do is go out and get those books. Um, highly, highly recommend them. How else do people engage with you? I mean, Johnny, we've got a lot of people doing SKOs and, you yes. know, they're looking for speakers <laughs> and they're great. looking for yeah, January is uh, coming up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how do they get a hold of you, Brent? How, where, where are you social media wise company? Where can we find your company? All that sure, good sure. stuff. Uh, the company's Taking Point Leadership. So the website is takingpointleadership.com. Um, I think social media wise, obviously, probably the most important uh, area is LinkedIn uh, to find me professionally. Uh, I'm on Instagram. I'm really only on Instagram because uh, my publisher said I needed to have an Instagram following uh, for, <laughs> for the book because they want to know how you're going to promote the book, not how they're going to promote the book. Um, <laughs> But uh, I think from a content standpoint, too, I, I've had a Forbes leadership column uh, for many That's years right. now. 
So yeah. if you just Google Brent Gleason Forbes, the, the author page will come up and it's got, gosh, probably hundreds of articles I've written over the years um, uh, on topics around leadership, culture, high performance, resilience, all those uh, things that we've been talking about. Um, so those are probably the best uh, places to, awesome. to find me and the, and the team. I think people that are also looking to bring their teams together for, as Brent pointed out, you know, core values and understanding, you know, how do they bring value? What's the purpose? How do they achieve that purpose? I think he'd be a phenomenal person yeah. to lead a, lead a team through that. No and and making all it. those things measurable, John, that's the, that's where we, we, we like to take it to a whole nother level is like, you can talk about all these things around values and culture and performance, but you know, anything important has to be managed and measured. So measuring those things and putting standards in place that you can measure performance against qualitatively and quantitatively are, are really where the highest performing teams and organizations take it. So, yeah. Hey Johnny, I'm going to do something a little bit different today. And when I do just a recap is more just kind of some key takeaways. And I'd like for you to, for you to think about filling in the gaps for me, but uh, this was an awesome conversation. I'm just going to give my highlights of what I took away. Do hard stuff on purpose is like, you know, these are probably going to be like post-it notes for me. I really, really like these moving beyond your comfort zone and doing it continuously. The training is never over growth mindset versus fixed mindset, staying in a three foot world. Um, uh, the gray man is just so that's a whole podcast. The great man's a whole podcast. <laughs> yeah, we, we could unpack that for a long time. We could <laughs> and, and embrace the suck for me. You can't lead others unless you can lead yourself first. And what ha what embrace the suck helped me with was really kind of getting in tune with some stuff for me personally, but immediately I was positioned. So if it's a great leadership book. It's a great personal book. Um, so I just, I, I highly, highly recommend it. Johnny. Thank you. I would say that, you know, what I've really learned in, you know, reading the book and it's re really reinforcement is that, you know, the fear and the anxiety that we face all the time. And I call it the negative guy in my head <laughs> yeah. that has as many years as I've been on this earth, I can't get rid of him. I even tell yeah, my kids, always I, gonna be I, there. I, I, that guy's <laughs> always there and he's got a big voice. He's actually got a bigger voice than the positive person, but yep. I always got to tell the negative guy to, to shut up. But going through the, those types of things is actually the way in which you psychologically grow. You know, you grow as a person, it develops character when yes. you can push yourself out there and go past the boundaries that you thought were possible. And sometimes it's like, you know, just like I said, going on a run or a, or a bike ride, you know, putting your gear on and taking that first step, closing the door behind you and okay, we're going. And now yeah. when you go, then you always realize, why was I listening to that negative yep. person? It's really not as bad as I thought. No. So the mind is a powerful thing and, and it can be used, you know, it's like you said before, Brent, it's a double-edged sword. It can be very positive. It could be very negative. As long as, but you got to learn how to control it. Absolutely. Well done. I think that's where it goes back to those predictors of success that you talked about intelligence and self-control. Uh, There's something, just one last thing to, to your point there. There was, I was, it was a, a post on, 
on Instagram. They're showing some military training, things like that. But the audio was fascinating. And, and it kind of goes into the sort of the cultural environment a lot of people talk about these days, especially with our younger generations. Um, and, you know, that, you know, we have to be soft, we have to be empathetic all the time, we have to be, you know, this, that, and the other, especially when it relates to, to men um, and young boys and how we develop and coach our, our, our young men. And he's like, no, he's like, no, be an animal. Be an absolute animal, then learn how to control it. I was like, <laughs> yeah, I've heard that, that in the most positive sense. I'm assuming. <laughs> no, I've heard that before. Be strong yeah. and learn how to yeah. um, learn how to control that. Is for any for men or for anybody yeah. for any oh, gender. Yeah. Be strong and learn how to control that is is really powerful advice. Johnny, yeah. bring us home with some rapid fire. Hey, Brent, how about uh, your favorite? Day off of work. Jumping out of airplanes. What is that? What is that? <laughs> yeah. Day off of work. Um, 100 mile run, like with David right. Goggins. Yeah. For, yeah. I, I would say 600 pull ups with David Goggins. Yeah. For me, yeah. No, no way. I like my comfort zone, guys. <laughs> you know, David has this 40%, you know, rule of, you know, yes. ability. And I was talking to one of my, one of our other, you know, longtime friends and SEAL classmates. We all went to train together. He's now an FBI uh, investigator in Chicago. And he was like, you know what? Next time we talk to David, tell him I like my 40%. I'm just going to stay right there. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm with you, dude. Um, no, perfect day off for me. Like my wife and I, and we love to travel. So anything travel oriented, definitely fitness. So getting in that exercise, that long swim or run or both. Um, and then, you know, for, for me with four kids ranging from 16 to 22 months, it's family time. So, yeah. And what about your favorite meal? I would have to trend towards Mexican every single time, you know, I'm, maybe it's cause I'm from Texas and I live in Southern California, but Mexican all day long. <laughs> How about your favorite movie of all time? I do, do not have, have a favorite movie. I, there's not, that's not, None. I could never pick. I don't have a favorite book. I don't have a favorite movie. Uh, cause it, it would have to go, we'd have to narrow it down by genre if we yeah, were yeah, going right. to, obviously I love, I'm a, I'm a, a student of, uh, of of war, not to sound n negative in a sense, but obviously based on my previous career, my dad was you know always a uh, a big history buff when it came to that kind of stuff. So obviously movies that have to do with major conflicts and what we can learn from those uh, would kind of fall into probably a right. prioritized category. Yeah, yeah. And um, how about you have a favorite concert you ever been to? Concert, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I always go back to my first concert, which was interesting. It was, I was in second grade. It was a kid's birthday party and we sat like second row center. It was Madonna and the opening act was the Beastie Boys. Wow. <laughs> Holy like, smokes, buddy. What a random combination. So not my favorite wow. concert. I, I, if I had to pick one, I'd say probably a good Dave Matthews band concert is always good. So, <laughs> And do you have a favorite charity you want to talk about or? I am obviously a bit biased when it comes to uh, charitable organizations being on the board of the SEAL Family Foundation. Uh, we're, a, I guess, in its basic definition, a more boutique version of the Navy SEAL Foundation, which is massive. Uh, but the SEAL Family Foundation, our, our core mission, obviously, is to support um, the families, uh, the, the operators, obviously, and their families. So uh, active duty operators, retired operators and their families, and of course, families of our, our fallen uh, members. Um, in very a lot of different capacities, we do everything from uh, funding, you know, graduation dinners to uh, health and medical needs to scholarships to obviously the the uh, unfortunate elements of um, financial 
investment and funerals and, and things like that. But uh, anything we can do to help support the, the family mission when it comes to the operator's excellence uh, is, is what we do because we, we've really come a long way as an, as an organization within Naval Special Warfare. And I think military-wide, unfortunately, probably fueled by 20 years of conflict of making sure that we're taking care of everybody because the family serves <laughs> just as much, if not more, I think sometimes than the the person you know with the flag on their shoulder so that's that's that is what we're all and about. do we find that at the seal family foundation.org or dot yes, com sir. yes yeah dot org, dot org. yeah okay got it and uh johnny's gonna wrap here brent but i think our audience and myself i'm very grateful to have you thanks for the book Same. embrace the suck yes. thank you and i'm hoping that some people take you up on uh doing an sko or a team leading through purpose and values thanks a lot Thank you, brother. I'm flying through Amsterdam in a few weeks, so I'll, I'll hit you up. <laughs> Brent, you're, uh, thank you for, for what you've done. Thank you for what you do with, you know, impacting organizations and writing great books like that you've provided and we've talked about here. Thanks for spending the time with us. Just really well done, really well articulated. We're, we're very, very appreciative. Well done. Thank you. It was an honor. and I, I loved our conversation and hope to do it again. You got it, brother. And for all of you listening, thank you for listening to The Revenue Builders. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com. 